You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Tuesday, October 3rd. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn, and the uh, less than uh, great sound quality that you hear now is the result of me driving my parents' car. So I've got this trip to Brunswick and St. Augustine, a little fall break soccer tournament and vacation coming up on Friday. And we have to drive two cars, and I'm like, you know what? One of them's gonna be my mom's Honda Pilot, because she's out of town, and it's a nicer car than mine. So I'm in my mom's car this morning, because I just, I've been driving it for a week. As a favor to my parents, you know, to keep the battery from dying. So that's what, I, that's what I'm doing, and you're riding with me to Lowe's. I have to go to Lowe's, because I have to get some playground sand to fill up the sandbags that keep my tripod from tipping over when I film soccer. I poured the sandbags out when I returned my trace camera. And I thought they'd want the sandbags and tripod back, but they didn't. So I'm all set now, all set. By the way, when you're buying the tripod from one of these uh, sports camera companies, those are huge ripoffs. Don't buy the tripod from them, get it on Amazon. Tripod's a tripod. They're charging you $200, $250 for one of these tripods. And I lucked out into mine for free. So, good for me. I have a full show for you today, and it's going to be the last full show of the week, unless somebody comes through today or tomorrow with a question in the inbox. The question... Now I can't read my writing. Oh! The question is about uh, eisegesis. 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 There we go. That's what the question's about. Eisegesis in the Gospels. That's what the question's about. Today's show title is It's Holiness, Stupid. Remember James Carville when he said, It's the economy, stupid. James Carville, the uh, prominent Democratic political advisor. He was married to a, I think, a Republican political advisor. Interesting uh, times at their dinner table, I'm sure. But James Carville, I think, was was instrumental in helping Clinton get elected. And Carville's known for his his quips, his wit. It's the economy, stupid. So, this, but this is it's holiness, stupid. That's the name of today's show title. I feel like I may have done this show title before. But you know what? If I repeat a show title in 1,500 episodes, so be it. It's amazing that I find something to talk about every day. Really helps when I have a question in the inbox. And we are going to just almost finish the parable of the talents today. We're going to talk about what the slave who had one talent did. We're going to go from verses 20 or verse 24 through verse 28 and then verse 29 is the final application of the story and Lord willing we'll do that Thursday. No show on Friday because I'm driving to Brunswick. 
All right, so starting at verse 24, Jesus has already explained what happened with the guy who got five talents and the guy who got two talents, how they doubled their money and entered into the joy of their master and received more responsibility. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But he answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew I reap where I did not sow and gather where I, sowed no, where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my return, I would have received money back with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Now, I took the five seconds to look this up today. The notes in the New American Standard Bible say a talent, one talent, is roughly equivalent to 15 years of wages of, say, a common laborer. So this guy was entrusted with no small amount of money. I mean, he's a slave. I don't, not a very talented one, so I guess his labor itself would have been worth one talent over 15 years. So you think about it, one guy got five, basically a lifetime's worth of wages, more than a lifetime in those days, 75 years, would have been a really long lifetime. One guy got 30 years wages. That's what we'd call a career because people retire after 30 years now. I don't think they did back then. They Listen, if they started work when they were 15 and lived till they were 45, good for them back in the day. But this guy, the guy who got one, one talent, 15 years worth of wages. And by the way, scholars quibble and argue over that on how much it was because we're trying to do, we're trying to figure out what the value of, of a bag of gold was. Talent is a weight, by the way. So a talent would be a talent of some precious metal, whether silver or gold. We would say ounce or pound, because that's what we use. Or kilogram, if you're metric. Grams, if you're metric. So this would have been a measure of gold, obviously worth a lot of money. And the scholars quibble over what that was, because even today, gold prices fluctuate. But we'll, we'll, the New American Standard, you know, just like Paul wrote it, so we'll call it, we'll agree with them and call it 15 years worth. It doesn't make a whole terrible lot of difference, because it's not, it's not necessarily the value of the money, it's the difference that each guy was given, each according uh, to his talent or to his ability. Right? So what does this one slave do? He just gives the guy his money back. And he says, he says to his master, in, in sort of a way that besmirches his character, I know you're a hard man, and you try to gather where you've scattered no seed and reap where you have not sown. I think this, I think, I didn't look this up, would have been an idiom of the day for a hard man who someone we might call today chintzy or even greedy. And I don't want to call the master in this parable greedy or chintzy because it's Jesus. But for the sake of the parable, the guy's a hard man. He expects a lot. I think reaping where you do not sow and scattering where you did not gather would have been an idiom for somebody who expects too much and is hard on his servants. 
and the servant basically says, well, you, you know, you're awful in this way because you're such a hard guy, and I was afraid of you being so hard, so here's your money back. He's afraid of putting his money at risk and losing it. So he did the most secure thing he could think of and buried it in the ground. I don't suppose they have the, had the FDIC back then. Do you guys know what you kids, I bet the adults know. We never think about this on a daily basis. We have the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission, which means that all deposits in a bank, all the bank accounts you have are insured up to $100,000 by the FDIC. And that is to engender faith in our banking system. Because if there was no faith in the banking system, how would our economy work? I think it would collapse. So if you put $50,000 in a bank and the bank goes out of business and loses your money, because they don't keep your money in there, they loan it out, the government's going to come and make you whole. They're going to give you that $50,000 back not how it was back back then if the bank went out of business there was no FDIC so I don't know what the insurance was if they even had any so this this guy this slave was so afraid of losing the money that he just buried it in the ground he didn't even give the opportunity for it to draw interest and by the way that was it's a say it's a super safe investment now to put your money in the bank and let it have interest it was a pretty safe investment back then too because if they didn't have trust in the banking system, it would have collapsed. So their banking system worked too. So this slave, out of fear of his master, his hard master, tells him why he didn't invest his money. I knew you're a hard man, here's your money back. The master doesn't defend his character. He doesn't say, oh, I'm not a hard man, you did wrong. He says, if you knew, you knew that, you knew I was a hard man, that I would expect more than what I gave you when I got back. And think about it, because the master didn't do anything. It's his money and he just gave it to somebody else and here, manage this. They did the work to double the money, except for this guy. He goes, you knew I was a hard man. You knew I reaped where I didn't sow. You knew I gathered where I didn't scatter, scatter seed. And this is what you do? So he said, he takes it and says, give it to the guy with 10. So remember the guy had five, it wasn't his money. It wasn't his, his bag of gold to begin with and he returns 10 to the master. So he goes, you're faithful over a few things, I'm gonna put you in charge of many. So we find out from the end of the story here that he just gave the guy the 10 talents back for him to, to manage. Because at the end of this he says, give his talent to the guy who has 10. The five he had plus the original five, because the master knows that that guy is gonna do a responsible job with it. And Lord willing, tomorrow on the Christian Commute, we're going to see the application of this parable as it has to do with what we're doing here on earth as we await the return of Jesus, our Master. So with that, let's end the Bible chapter review. And let's go to the inbox. Do you have a question about Christian theology and apologetics? If you do, you can write to Seth Dunn, 88 at gmail.com SethDunn88 at gmail.com or dial 470-315-0875 The Christian Commute is your theological roadside 
assistance. Today's question once again comes from James in West Virginia, James in West Virginia, who uh, gave us the benefit of the last question. And today's question is about eisegesis, and he refers to Mark chapter 2. Do you guys remember in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus is in a crowded house and he's teaching people? People are gathered all around. There's standing room only. There's people standing outside the door. And there's a group of guys who have a sick friend, basically a crippled, bedridden, lame friend. And they want to get him to Jesus so Jesus can heal him, but they can't get through the door. So what do they do? They climb up on the roof of the house. They remove the roofing. I think might have been sod or mud back then. And they have a hole in the roof, and then they lower the, their lame friend down on a pallet. And, and he's like, oh, Jesus, please heal me. And Jesus heals him. But what does Jesus say when he heals him? He says, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. And the teachers of the law who heard him say that, they bristle at this in their hearts. Who is this guy to forgive sins? Jesus knows their hearts. He says, which is easier to say? Get up and walk or your sins are forgiven? Because the idea is like only God can forgive sins. Like God, God has plenty of prophets out there who can heal people and do miracles. But they can't forgive sin. And Jesus is forgiving sins. So, we get, we get a sermon here. James hears a sermon, and he linked it to me. I didn't listen to it, but he linked it. And he said, the point of this sermon is the preacher goes through Mark 2, and he says, the, here, this is the importance of having good Christian friends. You need to surround yourself with good Christian friends. And James asks, is this eisegesis? And the answer is yes. It is. Now I want to point this out. It can sometimes be difficult to preach a sermon that has a decision point from the gospel and acts. Why? Because there's so much narrative. A lot of it is just stuff that happened. Whereas if you're preaching from the epistles, Paul is writing with a theological point. There's no narrative about I went here, then I went there, and I went here. I mean, there's a little bit of that narrative. But he's writing to these churches and these epistles. Same thing for Peter and Jude. There's an occasion. Even Hebrews has an occasion for writing and they're addressing something. Or addressing a bunch of things like he does in Romans, like Paul does in Romans. But preachers who are preaching a sermon series through the Gospels can be kind of difficult because it's just stuff that's happening. And they want to put people on a decision point, okay? The way they teach us in seminary, a sermon should put somebody on a decision point. Not just the decision to uh, walk the aisle. Oh, Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. 
All right, we got it. We got to do just as I am. We're telling people at the end, you know Jesus today, you got to get saved. It's not just that decision point that they teach us to put people on in seminary. It's all right, you've listened to this sermon, and now you need to apply it in your life. Okay? Jesus is not in your town right now preaching and healing people. So if you had a sick friend, you could not take him to Jesus for healing. So how are you going to apply this sermon? Well, look at this uh, look at this crippled guy. He had great Christian friends that he surrounded himself with, believing men. So they didn't lead him off to temptation. You could quote a couple proverbs about hanging out with the wrong crowd. No, they wanted to be around Jesus and trust Jesus and they took their friend to be healed. Are you surrounding yourself with people who bring you towards Jesus? or towards people who bring you away. And that's your decision point. Reconsider who you're hanging out with. Not these people who invite you over to their house to drink beer and watch women's MMA fighting. Or people, when you go off on a trip to Florida with them, they want to go find prostitutes or go to the strip club. No, no, don't hang out with those people who want to bring you away from Jesus. You find some good church friends because that's real connection. By the way, that's what Augustine said when he was talking in his book Confessions about true friendship, true Christian friendship, what we might call koinonia, is being connected through Jesus. He basically made the point that some people are connected around the things they like to do. These, these are my example, not Augustine's examples. Like going to play softball, going out drinking, going to play trivia, going to watch football, whatever that you have a mutual interest in. Going to play pickleball, that's what people like to do now. You got your pickleball and your softball friends who your closest friends should be your Christian friends. And I do believe that's true because you're brothers in Christ, not just people who like the same things and have similar personalities. That's true, but that's absolutely not the point of this scripture. And when I was at the Demonic Church of Freemasonry, Roland Springs, the hireling Joe Ringwalt was preaching through, I think, Matthew. And he, it wasn't the same story, but it was the same point. He's like, you, your, your friends should all be Christian friends. Not all, he didn't say that, but that's who your best friends need to be, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there thinking like, I agree with you, but that's not what this scripture is about. You're eisegeting. Do you know, James and listeners, that you can eisegete a truth into scripture? You can't, some people narcissize themselves into scripture or eisegete some abstract point they make up into scripture, but you can absolutely eisegete a truth into scripture. Think of Revelation where it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And somebody says, you better answer Jesus because it'll be too late when he comes back. You need to get saved now. That's not what that scripture is about. Jesus is not knocking at your, the, the door of your heart, begging you to get saved and let him in. Okay, that's not what it's about. But you do need to get saved because you're not going to have a chance when Jesus comes back. That's true, but it gets isogeted into that passage. So here you have a truth that you should have koinonia fellowship with Christian friends who love you enough to look after you and, and bring you towards Jesus, whether it literally carrying you towards Jesus like they did, or if you want to spiritualize, because you're spiritualizing the text, you know, they're, they're, going, to go, they're going to encourage you to go to Bible study, not, not the strip joint, okay? So yes, you should have, you should surround yourself with Christians and people of like character. Christian character. But that's not what this story is about. Because this story does have a theological point. 
Yes, indeed. The, the Gospels are a bunch of stuff that happened. It's a narrative of Jesus' life and his exploits, especially his ministry, around, you know, starting around 30 AD, but until his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. The same thing for Acts. It's the ministry of the apostles. But like it says in the book of John, Jesus did a bunch of stuff that's not included. We wouldn't have enough page space to fit in everything Jesus did. So why are there things in the book of John or the other biblical books in their same genre? Because I don't want to eisegete what John said into Mark, Matthew, and Luke. But why are these things there? The writers felt that they were important and there are theological points being made. Jesus was making a theological point. I'm God. That was his point when he, for, when he forgave sins. And that's why Mark included it. And by the way, it goes into the theme of Mark, like the secret of Mark, the messianic secret of Mark, where Jesus isn't letting things be known. He's not saying it outright, but it's just implied everywhere. But he says, oh, he tells the demons, don't say it, don't say it. But he's saying it in so many ways. Mark put that there in purpose. There are lessons in the Gospels. You just have to find them. And by the way, it's the same thing for Old Testament narratives. Like There's lessons in Samuel, 1st, 2nd Samuel, even though that's a narrative of, of the history of Israel and the history of Samuel and David and Saul. There are lessons in there to find. In fact, in ancient times, the rabbis would put little marks in the copies of the Bible where the lesson began and ended. So if you read a Hebrew Bible, those, they'll have those marks, you know, they're extra biblical, like we have the, head, the headlines or the headings and notes in, in the New Testament, and the Old Testament for that matter, the New American Standard. Even in the old days, people were putting, the, the teachers were saying, this is where I think the lesson begins and this is where I think the lesson ends. So yes, James, and you have to be careful and you have to pay attention. Because you will find preachers eisegeting in the Gospels because it is more difficult to get the points out sometimes. And they're trying to put somebody on a decision point. What's the decision point I would put somebody on from that sermon? Well, the first one I would put them on is, have you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior because He is God? And then I would say, how do you live your life recognizing that Jesus is your Lord and He's God? How, how, high, how high do you hold Him in esteem? Who do you listen to? Where do you spend your time? What's the most important thing in your life? How do you think of God? And how do you evangelize people? What do you tell them about Jesus? I mean, there, there can be a lot of decision points you come up with in a sermon. Which moves me to my show topic. It's holiness, stupid. So like I said, James Carville was, he's, I don't think he's as relevant anymore. He's a lot older. I think he may be retired. But he used to be a very relevant political consultant. And there have been some close races in my lifetime for president. So I don't think the Clinton versus Bush one race was very close because read my lips, no new taxes. Bush. Bush Sr. was a very unpopular president. He was the vice president of a popular president, Reagan. He was like winning landslide victories. 
I, did Reagan win California? He might have. So Reagan was just turning the whole country red uh, when you talk about red states and blue states. And Bush rode that wave, but then the economy ran into stagnation. We got in the war in Kuwait, and I think people were mad that we went and fought this war and didn't wipe Saddam out when we could have, Saddam Hussein. And then he said no new taxes, and they gave us new taxes. So he was an unpopular president, but even though it's, it's hard to beat an incumbent, and, that J and people get on all these social issues. Uh, what about the war? What about abortion? What about uh, this, that, and the other? And James Carville is saying it's the economy, stupid, because that's what people think about day to day. They worry about money. How am I going to make my house payment? What if I don't have a job? How am I going to pay for my kids? How am I going to put food on the table? And when the economy, especially when it's bad, you make the point of the economy. When the economy's good and you're president, you say, look at how good I've done with the economy. And I think that's why Clinton won uh, handily twice, because times were good when Clinton got in there. And then you had a close race again between uh, Bush and Gore. I think that one had to go to the Supreme Court. That was that. Was that the hanging chads? And you know, we I think we've generally had close races ever since. And James Carville all along is saying it's the economy, stupid. Well, when it comes to church stuff, you can get distracted by any number of things to argue about. What's our Sunday school literature? What songs are we singing? What's our social policy? But when it comes down to it, it's holiness. If there is some problem at your church, it comes down to holiness. So by now, our operatives and agents from Protestia have returned home, having gone to Andy Stanley's How to Minister to Gays conference. Right? And Andy Stanley's come out with a sermon that he didn't stream, but people found the recording anyway. And you even you have broad Southern Baptist, uh, prominent evangelicals from the seminaries like Albert Moeller, like Andrew Walker. Is that the right name? I think so. Even Alan Schleeman from Stand to Reason. And these people are coming out and saying Andy Stanley's dangerous or Andy Stanley has left Christianity. And if you read their assessments, you see like they're right. And you know why they're right? Because Andy Stanley put holiness aside. So let's talk, not just Andy Stanley, let's talk about seeker sensitivity. What happens in a seeker sensitive church? The church tries to grow numbers by getting in people who are admittedly lost or not Christians, who don't believe. They're trying to make the church palatable believers, to, or to non-believers, I should say. But what are those people? It sounds mean to say, but they're unholy. They're impure. They're what the Masons would call profanes. They're not of the body. So you look at what the church is, ecclesia, the called out ones, it's a body of people, a nation of people really set aside for God, for His glory and His service. And they get together to worship Him. Well, when you make it about attracting non-Christians, what you're ultimately not respecting is God's holiness. 
because you're turning church, the church activity, the Sunday event, into something that appeals to unholy people. Do you think unholy people love an unholy God? The answer is no, they don't. Because they're unregenerate. And if somebody said, you know, it sounds like a good idea to have this outreach, but you know, God is first and foremost holy. That's what we see in Revelation. The, the, the creature is worshiping Him saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's thrice holy. And otherwise, that the reason they say that is to emphasize His holiness. If you want to look at the most emphasized attribute of God, now God's perfect and all His attributes are perfect, and you say God is love, and the Scripture straight out says God is love, or God is merciful, or God is just, or God is wrathful for that matter, because He has wrath. God gets angry. But ultimately, God is holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, Early in the morning our songs will rise to Thee. Holy, 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 all the saints adore Thee. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Remember when churches used to sing stuff like that? Do you think the seeker people want to sing that or hear that? No, because they don't believe He's holy. Because if He's holy, they're dirt. Yeah, they're wicked if He's holy. And they don't love God. They don't want to sit there and talk about how holy He is. You don't have that in seeker-sensitive church. The saints want to say, Oh, the saints adore Thee. What is, how would we translate saint? Hagios, holy... Our English word saint comes from the Greek word for holy. To be a saint, we're all saints. The saints of God, we're set apart. That's what it means. So people look, and I don't want to beat this topic up because I've talked about it so much. People look at Andy Stanley becoming gay affirming and they say, oh well, this is against holiness. They're not looking at, at the sanctification of the people. I'm like, guys... He hasn't looked at the sanctification of people for 20 or 30 years now. Neither, neither did Hybels. Neither is Rick Warren. Because holiness is not on their mind. So the problem is not homosexuality. The problem is not shacking up. The problem is not how you dress. The problem is not that they're ashamed to put a cross on the building. The problem is that they're not holy. Now you go on to your own church. And they're singing reckless love. They're singing elevation. And no one's offended. Do you know why? Because they don't have an emphasis on holiness. Do you remember when the prophet in the Old Testament said, was in the throne room of God in his vision? And he said, I am, woe to me, I am undone. 
for I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. He was terrified. He had the fear of God. He knew he was in the presence of holiness because that's what the creatures around God were saying, holy, 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 in this Old Testament vision. And you know, they put the coal on his mouth and, and they, they said, now you're holy. That should be our attitude in our everyday lives, by the way. When you're scrolling through social media and some tawdry video comes across your Facebook feed, flick through it or click, I don't want to see this anymore. You're sitting there all by yourself eating breakfast. Nobody's, it's not a worship service. Nobody's watching you. You say, I'm holy and set apart. I'm not going to watch this. When you're on the sidelines and the ref is screwing up and he deserves to be yelled at and people are cussing him, you don't cuss him too because I'm holy, I'm set apart, I'm different. I'm talking about everything in your everyday life. God sees everything you do, Christian. He shed his blood. Jesus shed his blood so you could be holy, live like it, and act like it in your everyday life. And that comes down to how you dress. One, of, I, I talked a couple days ago about doing a couple of investigations. I mean, one of them, I'm going to come right out and say, because I've started to verify things, is Stevie Flockhart. Steve Flockhart's son. And I talked to one of the, the churches that hired him, or somebody from one of the churches that hired him as a pastor. And Stevie Flockhart came down in jeggings. Jeggings. You know what guys jeggings are? I think they're out of style now. They're leggings that look like jeans. And the guy said Stevie Flockhart came down in skin tight jeggings with his junk hanging out. I mean bulging out, not hanging out. That's not a modest man. That's not a man concerned with personal holiness. That's a man who looks like he's been in the tanning bed quite frankly. Where does it say in the Bible for a man not to get in the tanning bed? Hey, listen. If anybody should be in the tanning bed, it's me. I'm about to go to the beach and I'm going to blind some people, alright? For the sake of others, I should be in the tanning bed, okay? But sometimes there's something like, there's no rule somewhere, there's no book that says men shouldn't be in the tanning bed, but come on. Why are men getting in the tanning bed? Okay? But you need to be modest in your apparel wherever you are. Okay? Man or woman. And I'm not going to go on and on about the people dressed like harlots at the high school game. Hey, harlots at the high school game would be a really good country song or IFB hymn. We could play that on the... There's a station here called WLJA. It plays gospel music out of Ella J. I need to write that. There's harlots at the high school game. And they want you to... They want to be in, in love with greed and fame. But you need to just follow Jesus and not the harlots at the high school game. Alright, there we go. I just, I'm just... I, I'm not making... I'm not singing other people's songs. I'm making up my own now. Okay? Harlots at the high school game. But then when it comes down to your church and they're singing the junk music I complain about on here 
and women are not dressed modestly. You know why? It's because those people don't care about holiness. If people were saying, we are gathered together as the people of God to worship the living God, an omnipresent living God, we're going to sing, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Feel it like the atmosphere. If we really believe we're in God's presence, are we going to sing like he's a, he's a noble gas from the periodic uh, chart of the elements? Now, if you, love, if you believe the holiness of God, if you really thought about the holiness of God, if you feared the holiness of God, and the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, says the Scripture, you wouldn't be singing that junk. The women wouldn't be dressed like that. You wouldn't be singing garbage music. You wouldn't be studying garbage stuff on Wednesday night because holiness. And people want to get into an argument about, well, is Tony Evans okay? Or, well, is Elevation okay? Or, well, are we going to tell people how to dress? Stop talking about that and teach holiness. If you teach holiness, everything else will take care of itself. Holiness needs to be the economy, stupid. Everything needs to revolve around the holiness of God. You cannot overemphasize it. Because you know what? The Bible emphasizes it as much as you can emphasize something. Holy, holy, holy. He's not a little bit holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And if you teach your people at church that God is holy, and you teach the kids, and you have an expectation of holiness... You won't go issue by issue. What about this? What about that? You'll say, what does this say about our church, us as a Christian, or us as Christians corporately, me as a Christian personally, what does this say about how I view the holiness of God? Am I glorifying Him? Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again Thursday. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. Send me a question about theology or apologetics or eisegetical sermons to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. That is SethDunn88 at gmail.com. And now I am pulling into the Walmart Shopping Center. In case you didn't know, this is my least favorite place in Cartersville. But it is where the Lowe's is. Because Home Depot, which is in a more favorable part of town, was out of playground sand. So I'm going to leave you right here and go pick up my playground sand. Fill my bags. And you guys enjoy this Christian commute and send me some questions. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to sethdunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.